and then I'd go to prison on Wednesday nights. Um, and then interestingly, I am fond of saying that uh, proximity is the key to understanding. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take very long for me to see that the system that we have, and I'm not even getting into the meta issues here, right? Just like feet on the ground. Why are we sending people to prison who aren't dangerous to community? And I'm asking myself this question, why week after week after week am I being asked to lay my hands on the shoulders of a woman who's getting ready to leave, who has just spent, you know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, in this institution. And she has absolutely no tools for being able to reintegrate in community successfully. And it started, creating an angst, fire in my belly, as some would say, um, to look at the bigger picture. Um, A group of friends from my church and I got together and said, okay, let's at least make sure that people coming back into our neighborhood, into our communities, into our place, our county specifically, let's make sure they have a fighting chance. Well, greetings, friends, to another episode uh, two of the Communitas podcast. We welcome you here, and I'm really excited for today's conversation. I'm speaking with uh, an old friend, uh, but just an, an incredible woman uh, that has done so many remarkable things. We can't wait to hear more from you, Jody. Welcome to the Communitas podcast, Jody Hansen. Thank you, you so doing? much. Thank you for inviting me and wanting to talk about this thing that most people that I encounter don't want to talk about. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And and we will talk about some of those things. Um, And I appreciate the the style and the humor even uh, that you bring to some of these topics, but more importantly, the the passion uh, that's been driving you for as long as I've known you. So let's do this. Jody, um, to those listening uh, inside and outside of Communitas, Jody is affiliate staff in Newburgh, Oregon. has been ordained and uh, has been running various ministries, including house church, uh, mm-hmm. for quite some time. So you you are the prototypical communitas person. Um, so for those that don't know, uh, in and outside of the organization, tell us a little bit about some of your background, what got you to where you are, and then you can start kind of going into the way you've impacted your community. Sure. Um my story began when I came to faith in Jesus at 17 um, at the Crystal Cathedral, actually. The, yeah. the preaching of Robert Schuller, if you know anybody remembers him, when the, um, the TV cameras were off, he would preach from the word. And he was preaching in that evening service um, on uh, Philippians 2 yeah. and how Jesus gave up everything that it meant to be God to come down and live this existence with us. Um, and so my very first encounter with Jesus was a message of incarnation, Hmm. um, embodied God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. So that was at 17. And then I went off and got a degree in nursing, launched this career, um, met my husband, ended up in healthcare, IT, business development, all of these cool things, um, skill sets that God had been giving to me over the years. Um, for when a call, if you want to call it, that would eventually come. Dave and I had always been, um, I like to couch us as nice white church people. Um, and yeah, the white part matters because, uh, the Latina church, the, the African American church, the, you know, the black church in America, they have a very different experience with kind of where God left me or Mm -hmm. led me than, um, than my background being, uh, you know, a, a privileged white woman with an education, whatnot. So in 2000, right before the 08 crash, my career kind of blew apart, like a lot of people. And Dave and I were fortunate enough to be in a situation that I didn't have to go back to that world. And the Lord kind of deconstructed a lot of who I was or who I thought I was, a lot mm. of who we thought we were as a couple. And, um, 
when God deconstructs, you're just sort of left with this blank slate. A friend of mine recently said when, when, uh, what is it? Nothing is, oh, dang it. I'll get it later. There's a, it was a great thing she just gave to me recently that when, oh, when nothing is certain, everything is possible. Yeah. Good. And so that was, you know, 08, 09, 10 was a, was a period of nothing was certain and everything was possible. Um, I also had been frustrated at the time with um, our conservative evangelical contexts and for years and years and years having a career, a very successful career in the outside world, supporting my family. Um, and yet everybody had to pretend that that wasn't happening because women were supposed to be at home with their children mm. with very rigid ideals in our church context about male headship and what women should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and I had been pushing against that for quite some time. And then there were a few events where I said, okay, game over. And I remember sitting in, um, the admission advisor's office at Portland Seminary. And she said, why do you want to come to seminary? And I said, because I'm sick of men telling me what God thinks of me and what I can do as a woman. I'm going to get the same education they have. And then I will know what God is calling me to do. Mm. Um, And it was funny because had I been her, I probably would have said, oh, honey, go work out your anger and then come back. Right. And instead, she said, all right, we can work with that. You're, you're in, <laughs> you know? And so I started um, in my later 40s in seminary with the intent that I was going to find out what God really thought of women mm. and women as leaders. Because I'd been a leader in one world, but then I went to the church world and I wasn't allowed to be a leader. Right. So I went to seminary and as, you know, God in the twisted sense of humor that is often the way we we get our callings. I had my um, Abraham moment. Hey, go there to a place I will show you. And then I'll tell you what you're going to do when you get there. Mm -hmm. And that was in one of my very first seminary classes, first semester, a woman named Fran Howard. She was in her 70s at the time. She came into the seminary class and she had five women with her who Mm. had done time in our prison system here in the state of Oregon. And she was sharing the transformative power of Christ on those who had broken the law and ended up in prison. And specifically, she served women for 25 years or something like that at the time. And it was one of those moments, as I say, where it felt like you know, the light shone down through the the fluorescent light beams in the, yeah. <laughs> the ceiling of this very boring classroom. And God said, go there. Hmm. And I ruminated on that for weeks. Like, why would I be called to prison ministry? That uh, was just so strange to me. And um, I didn't, I've never done time. I broke a lot of laws as a young woman, didn't get cut, you know, those kinds of things. But um, so I went and met with Fran and that started my journey. And um, I started going into Coffee Creek Women's Prison, the only women's prison in the state of Oregon. Hmm. And very quickly, Fran and some of the other women there said, well, you're the only person around here who's getting any higher education in theological studies or biblical studies, maybe you should teach the Bible studies. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, okay. Um, simultaneously, we had left the church that had such rigid views of what women could and couldn't do and went to a different church where the lead pastor said, I think you have a pastoral call on your life. Mm. And I literally remember in that moment, as much as I was pushing against the rigidity of my previous church context, I was like, oh, dude, that's not allowed. <laughs> you know, I can't. I mean, it's one thing for me to run big companies and be a consultant and give advice to men out there, but I need male permission wow. when anything comes under the purview of ministry or the Bible or whatever. So, you know, these, these roads were intersecting during that really 
amazing time. Four years of seminary was just a gift to a woman in her late 40s. I graduated when I was 50 years old. And it was an absolute gift to not be there because I need the grades. I need the I need the job. I need to play the game. I need to get in the institution, you know, whatever. People would say, what are you doing in seminary? And I'd be like, ah, learning about God. That's all I got. <laughs> and then I'd go to prison on Wednesday nights. Um, and then interestingly, I am fond of saying that uh, proximity is the key to understanding. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take very long for me to see that the system that we have, and I'm not even getting into the meta issues here, right? Just like feet on the ground. Why are we sending people to prison who aren't dangerous to community? You know, maybe they have drug crimes or low-level property crimes. And especially in the case of a women's prison, most of those women there have suffered phenomenal trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus they medicate self-medicated with illicit substances, you know, all the things that go with it. And I'm asking myself this question, why week after week after week am I being asked to lay my hands on the shoulders of a woman who's getting ready to leave, who has just spent, you know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is in this institution. And she has absolutely no tools for being able to reintegrate in community successfully. Hmm. She has no tools Right down to, I don't even know where I'm where I'm going to lay my head tomorrow night when I when they put me on that bus and send me back to my community wherever it is in Oregon. I haven't seen my kids in years. They're in foster care, and it started um, creating an angst, fire in my belly, as some would say, Mm. um, to look at the bigger picture. And so that was by 2011. Um, a group of friends from my church and I got together and said, okay, let's at least make sure that people coming back into our neighborhood, into our communities, into our place, our county specifically, let's make sure they have a fighting chance to, to survive life out here. Um, and so we started doing reentry work on a very uh, informal, limited basis and then in 2017, one of my ministry partners, it was funny, we'd been reading Tattoos on the Heart. If you haven't read it, it's fabulous. Father Greg Boyle down in in uh, the LA area. Um, we'd been reading that and she said, you know, why don't we start a nonprofit? So at least, and this is a quote, at least we can get tax write-offs for all the money we're spending on helping these people get on their feet <laughs> after prison. Yeah. <laughs> And with my background, the idea of starting a nonprofit was like, all right, that's easy. I've been on a lot of boards. I'd started businesses and grown them from nothing into multi-million dollar endeavors. I understood operations, the law, all those things. I, all right, let's start a let's start a, a nonprofit. Um, and so we applied for our 501c and got that. We named our nonprofit Remnant Initiatives. Um, and we called it that because the the name is rich with meaning in that at the highest level, it just means small actions. Just do the next right thing until all those little small actions start to become a normal way of life. Um, but the deeper uh, meaning to us was kind of like... Um, my grandmother was a seamstress when I was growing up and she had all these fabric remnants that were thrown all over the floor Mm. in her sewing room where she was, you know, making quilts or clothes or whatever. And then these remnants would just be laying there. And the idea is that we have to sew back these human remnants that we think we've thrown away when we send them off to prison. Mm. We have to sew them back into the community so that we can all enjoy that shalom, that rich harmony and peace and goodness and well-being that we all seek as followers of Jesus. We want the goodness, the shalom for our communities, for our faith communities, and for everybody else in the community. Hmm. And so we called it Remnant Initiatives with this intent that we're going to so throw away citizens back into community when they return. And I won't go into a lot of like the 
the detailed, how it grew, what it did, but it got to the point where um, we have been a, not just a group of nice church people trying to help vulnerable human beings coming back from prison to reintegrate into community, but it has become a, um, a force within the community for helping people to kind of wake up hmm. to how mass incarceration intersects with every social justice issue on the radar of the church. I don't care what that issue is. When we talk about racial reconciliation, we cannot have that conversation without going back to the 13th Amendment when we abolished slavery, but left the exception in there that says, well, slavery is allowed if you commit a crime. Mm-hmm. And that then in turn has grown into, you know, when Nixon in the 70s declared the war on drugs and then Reagan gutted social services in the community to be able to win the Cold War. And that was a good thing, but the money had to come from somewhere and our poorest citizens and our poorest communities suffered there. Um, And then when Bill Clinton and his efforts to be a good politician tapped into the collective fear in our society, in our country of crime and criminals, uh, tapped into that, and we threw the 1994 crime bill into the equation. And then the voters caught the fire and started creating these initiatives that made our answer to every social problem, Hmm. poverty, immigration, uh, child welfare, mental health, all of our social challenges as our society. The answer is always, oh, we're going to lock you up for that. And it just became a wildfire on the wheat field that we haven't been able to stop to this day. We're... Hmm. We're making strides, but we're far from most people having a clue. So in the midst of all of this, it became very clear that God not only had called me to serve this very vulnerable, difficult population, but because I am a, um, my social media handles are nice white church lady, um, because I'm a nice white church lady who has connections within the faith community and is readily accepted Um, in the halls of justice um, or punishment, as I like to say, um, I can take my unique selfness into spaces that other people can't go. Hmm. Um, And I can have conversations that other people might not be able to have. Um, And this is where the Lord has just kind of turned it into, as you say, you know, a passion. It's a calling, but it's a passionate calling. And there's just a few things as I've been praying lately, God have mercy. Can I just see like mandatory minimums get dismantled and healthcare inside prison be uh, humane? And can we end solitary confinement? And can we take that exception out of the 13th Amendment? And can we do all of these things and a couple of other things before I die? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so there's the answer to, you know, how did we get here? Wow. Well, thank you. The The, the journey is, is um, inspiring for sure. <clears throat> a couple of questions come to mind, but I also want to hear some more stories. I know. Um, you've welcomed people into your home. In fact, when you were, when you were talking about not welcoming people back, it, it brought to mind to me the story of the prodigal, right? And, and how radical that story is in that and here is somebody by their, by their own design was cast away. And then when they came back, the, the, the father ran out to greet. Why don't we do that as a community? With with people, you know, right? If if they've been cast out or if they've been in prison, um, seems like we could learn a lot from that. that we can, that and and you know, it's interesting. We talk about the prodigal, and that's an easy one because this person made, uh, you know, the the prodigal son made choices. I mean, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. I don't know do, how how careful do I have to be about my language because you know I have kind of a potty mouth. Um, pretty much pissed <laughs> all over 
Oh, that was very all tame. The You're benefits. fine. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> all the benefits that being in the family that he came from had to offer him. Right. He said, right. screw that. I want my money now. Okay. Yeah. I, I want the money I'm going to get when you croak now. And I'm going to go off and live my life the way I want to live it. And, and that's a beautiful story of how God welcomes us back when we do stupid stuff. Okay. But there's so many other examples. I mean, especially in the gospels mm. where you can really, if you look for them, you can see that the impulse of Jesus is to take those that have been cast out, whether it's by their own choices or whether it's just because of the, the social contract in which they live, yeah. they've been cast out, they've been cast away and they've been set aside. And the ministry of Jesus wasn't, Look at me, I'm healing people. Isn't that great? I'm so cool. It's like, no, I'm going to heal these lepers. I'm going to touch them. I'm going to show you that the this people group that you say is so unclean and so dangerous, you never want to go near them. I will embrace them. I will touch them. I will heal them. And I will reestablish them into the social fabric that we all enjoy together. Mm. I mean, right down to, you know, someone with a 12-year period. Yeah. Because the the context of Jesus' day, you know, was kind of rolling back to the Levitical laws and then a whole bunch of other stuff that got added to it. Who's in and who's out? Yes. And who's out, we like to think is out forever. Hmm. The reality is that 95% of everybody that we lock up in this country is coming right back to the neighborhood. Hmm. Who do we want them to be? And, and the general populace, I'm not saying everybody has to go and do the kind of work that I do with the, the proximity that I have. But I do believe that the people of God have got to give up our addiction to separating outcasts so that we don't have to face our own culpability and what casts them out. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't want to yeah. look at that. Yep. Yeah. So talk a little bit about um, the communities of faith that you've helped foster for mm -hmm. those that unfortunately either legally couldn't go inside a church or mm -hmm. would be welcomed uh, in, in a lot of churches. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because we talk about welcoming people groups in our churches, you know, and every <laughs> church marquee says, you know, all are welcome. Um but the reality is that we, we determine who's going to be welcome and who's not going to be welcome by our norms. Mm. Okay. Um, if your church is, is very white, you know, very middle-class, upper middle-class, whatever, you're not going to feel safe and welcoming to somebody that doesn't fit into that paradigm. We have very homogenous churches, primarily because when we don't like the way things are going down in our church, we go found, find another church that's more like us. Right. Um, we're not committed to the fact that church is, is rooted in a chunk of real estate, you know, the, the same dirt that our feet walk on. And in my town, it's crazy. I mean, we're like 26,000 and at one point, I think we had 42 churches, you know, uh, COVID and other things have started that declining. I don't know how many there are today, but still a boatload of them. So you can get any flavor of what you want when you go to church. So welcoming isn't just about saying, oh, we want to welcome you here. I mean, I've said so many times when we talk about racial reconciliation, if you want more people of color in your congregation, then you need to get out of your congregation and go take your white booty and sit it in the pew of, of a community of color. Yeah. That's where integration comes from. Not us saying, hey, we're not going to be mean to you. Do you want to come hang out with us? You'll feel really weird and uncomfortable, <laughs> but you can come hang out with us because we won't be mean. Really? I mean, with that, that's what we really think. What what makes us so audacious is to think that that's some sort of a movement toward community development and reconciliation. Then you get into the issue of criminal records. And I find that most nice white church people 
who intersect with folks that have um, have broken the law or been convicted of breaking the law. And I say that because having a criminal criminal conviction doesn't mean you committed the crime. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about plea bargaining and the whole mess that 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 is. But um, people with criminal convictions, criminal records, and now we're up to um, over 70 million out of our 300 and something million in this country. People have a criminal record. 600,000 people every year in this country return from prison into their communities. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So most people, nice white church folks, when they intersect with somebody who has committed a crime, are either going to say, oh, I'm so woke that I'm just going to embrace you and you're great. Hmm. Without having an understanding of the kinds of behaviors and ways of being that lead someone to the point that they think it's okay to break the social contract and to break the law. And I don't want, I, I mean, these are these are ways of being that usually start in childhood. Very few people wake up and say, someday I'm going to be a drug lord. You know, you just don't. It sort of happens. Um, you either fall in that camp, and that's dangerous. Or you fall in the other camp that says, if I can keep myself in the places that I have control bodily separated from people who have committed crimes, then I'm going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And the reality is every time you go to the grocery store in this, you know, the, after all these 50 years of mass incarceration, you go to the grocery store, you're rubbing elbows with people with criminal records every dang day. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite stories is one, um, a guy named Adam, and he had started using heroin and meth with his mother when he was 12. You know, how do you blame him for breaking the line in drugs? I mean, at 12, how much agency do you really have? And if you're in a family system like that, and then the trauma, his mom died of an OD when he was 19. Hmm. A couple of years later, his brother also died of an OD. His dad finally got sober. And at the time I met Adam, his dad had been sober for 10 years, but was putting some pretty significant boundaries between he and his son. Adam, when he met us, um, had only the longest he'd ever been sober in his life since he was 12 years old. And we met him at 31, um, was 30 days. Wow. That was the longest he'd ever been sober. And so there was another guy, they lived in transitional housing together, Caleb and Adam were buddies. And one day we're driving around in my car. It's a rural community. So, you know, to get to social services, you really need a ride. And so we're driving around in my car and we, um, they're telling me about these shenanigans that they would pull in prison. And I'm laughing so hard. I did not know till they informed me that if you want to get into a fight in prison and not get in trouble for it, then you have to punch a guy out while he's sitting on the toilet. Cause there's no cameras in there. <laughs> Seriously. And then we started talking about the pecking order. There's an absolute pecking order in prison of what the nature of your charges are and your crimes and what you've done. And so we're having this kind of, you know, shake your head and and laugh, but I don't know if it was uncomfortable. It's just like, really, you really did that? It's a weird laugh. Not a real joyful thing, kind of a cynical laugh thing. And Adam all of a sudden gets really serious and he goes, no, Jody, seriously, like, I can't, I can't thank you guys enough for taking a chance on us, like wanting us to have a phone and clothing and, you know, putting me in your car, driving me to health and human services so that I can get some health care and all the things we were doing. He just got really serious and it was kind of a, a buzzkill for the mood that we had been in. So I sort of rolled back into, okay, how do we get this fun again? And I said, well, you know why we do this? And he said, honestly, I have no idea where it, why anybody like you and Charlie and Lish and other volunteers, I have no idea why any of you would want to hang out with losers like us. And I blurted out, so you won't steal my car. <laughs> and we laughed. But then he got really serious again. He's like, no, 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 no. I will never steal your car. He said, I know you. 
Now, if you were some random lady that I didn't know and I needed money for a fix, I'd probably steal her car, but I could never steal your car, Jody. I know you. Mm-hmm. And that was huge for me in recognizing that when people who are raised in ways of being that justify breaking the law, doing harm in the community, stealing cars, which both these guys had done a lot of, um, that when they are confronted with belonging, it's harder to harm somebody you know than somebody you don't. That's why social media is so Mm -hmm. awesome. I can say whatever the hell I want. I can take down anybody I want on social media and I don't have to own it because I never have to look those people in the face and say, yeah, that was really wrong of me to characterize you in that way. Hmm. Yeah. So this belonging. So that's the example of being in community with people that, um, that others might find scary. I I got to dig into the community that it's just really crazy how the Lord does one thing, you know, like Abraham, go to the land, I'm going to show you. And then, oh yeah. And then this, like Moses, all he told Moses was just go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go. That's all. Yeah. That's all yeah. you got to do. He didn't give him the full job description because Moses would have said, no, wait. And I think if I had been given the full job description in the beginning, I probably would have said no way. Cause I mm-hmm. didn't understand enough to know what God was really calling us to do. Um, and so one of the populations that is um, most ostracized in society, uh, most characterized in very evil and one dimensional ways in the media um, is that of people who have committed sex crimes and have to register for their crimes. They're, you know, the sex offender registry. So registered, we call them uh, registered sex offenders is the usual parlance. I prefer to use the term people who have to Mm. register. Um, But this population over time is probably the one that when you look at our criminal justice system and the ludicrousness of how we do things, it gets beyond ludicrous with this population. Hmm. Tell you a story. When people hear the term sex offender, they think of someone who has either committed a violent act of rape against a woman or done horrible things of a sexual nature to children. That's what most of us think. Uh, one of the guys that we have served in our community has a major problem with alcohol was in a bar one night and he slapped a woman on the butt. And, you know, this is when me too is going down. And she of course called the police cause you don't get to touch my butt. And the police came in and charged him with a misdemeanor, uh, sexual harassment charge. He spent five months in the local jail for it. Not, you know, it's it's a it's a not even a felony charge, whatever. Um, but now he has to register as a sex offender. Hmm. Consequently, when he got out of jail, he wasn't allowed to go home to his wife and his two sons, two-year-old, ten-year-old son. Hmm. So we were scrambling to find him transitional housing, but transitional housing won't allow folks that have sex crimes to be in their communities because children might come visit other guys in the house. So I remember years ago, before I even started, just starting this work, talking to the PO in our community that manages sex offenders. And I said, where are these guys supposed to live? There's literally nowhere for them to go. And he goes, well, honestly, I usually just give them a sleeping bag in a tent and tell them where to go so the cops won't bother them. Well, so here's here's the ludicrousness. The guy who's drunk and slaps somebody on the butt in the bar is held to the exact same standard as the guy who really did perpetrate a sex crime against a child. Hmm. Either way, they're both going to the street if nobody will house them. So where's the public safety in that? Right. 
the guy who, and, and this is true story. You know, my husband does child welfare law and he had a family that had been fostering a little girl for many, many years. And they were on the verge of, um, navigating her adoption into this foster family. Her parents had relinquished their rights. They were on the lamb, whatever. And so she was on the verge of being adopted a forever home for a foster child. Hmm. And the bio son of this family turned 18, had a girlfriend who was 15, almost turning 16, but that matters. If you're 18 and having sex with a 16-year-old, it's different than if you're 18 having sex with a 15-year-old. So he turns 18. Somehow or another, it came out to the school counselor that they were having sex. The school counselor is a mandatory reporter. So the school counselor has to report, now this kid's looking at six years of prison. Hmm. And jeopardizing to him what is his baby sister getting ready to be in her forever family yeah simply because he turned 18 the age of consent varies by um state tremendously and like in georgia if you all remember back in 89 when rob lowe had his little sex scandal The age of consent in Georgia was 16 at the time. Had he pulled that shenanigan in California, Rob Lowe would be a registered sex offender today who served time. Instead, he's got a successful career. See his face all over Netflix, like, you know, nuts. Simply because he had sex with a 17-year-old when he was 25 in the right state. Hmm. This is a freaking mess. Yeah. It's an absolute mess mess we have a guy um that's in our community now who uh had sex he says he was 17 um she claimed he was over 18 he this is years ago went off went to prison for 12 years um got out has now rebuilt his life and he and his girlfriend just had a baby in november Mm. okay He's not allowed to change the baby's diaper. Hmm. What does changing a baby's diaper have to do with the fact that I made a really stupid decision when I was a kid? Yeah. It's one size fits all when it comes uh, to sex offenses. And I think that's just got to be connected to our weird, you know, puritanical pornographic society. We in the church have to come to grips with the fact that, you know, we, we don't manage that tension very well. Oh, we're all pure and pure and pure until, you know, we get in our home offices by ourselves and then click, click, click. We can have anything we want. You don't know how old that person is. It's just nuts. So what we felt the Lord was calling us to do. And I can't tell you how many of my friends look at Dave and I and go, you're nuts. (laughs) um this past year we bought a home and we have uh we have right now 10 guys in it we have room for one more Hmm. um 10 guys living there trying to rebuild their lives um had a conversation recently with somebody who did 18 years and he did perpetrate against a child Hmm. he said i met her at church by the way (laughs) at the age of eight um, and then started a a very inappropriate relationship with her. And then by the time she hit 16, she got the memo from the school counselor and others that what was going on here was not okay. Hmm. Uh, And so she told her parents and that led to him being adjudicated and doing 18 years. And I said, you know, how did that happen? Because I've never met somebody who molests a child that wasn't molested as a child Mm. until this particular case. I said, how does that happen? What were you thinking? And he says, I don't know. I don't know how I even had it in me to do what I did. 
But I know that after 18 years of sitting in prison and wasting the taxpayers' money and my time, now that I'm released to community, I'm finally going to get the treatment that I probably should have had right in the beginning to try and get to the bottom. What the hell was I doing? Hmm. Hmm. That's somebody who was raised in the church, who has family members who are prominent pastors in my community. We all got it in us to do horrible things that harm other people. Um, And going to prison and punishment is never the answer. And it sure as hell isn't the way of Jesus. Mm. So back to like my original statement, being on the one side, because you're so woke, you're just, you know, going to run in and help people who've done time without understanding what got them there? What are the root issues? And and what are the normal behaviors in a population who's had to do time? Or the other side that says, I'm afraid without even thinking about the fact that people who have committed crime are in your midst, whether you like it or not. Because mm-hmm. until we're willing to give everyone who breaks any law a life sentence, we have to reckon with the fact that everybody comes back to neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, and how so? How do you, Jody? Um, you've mentioned the word community a lot, uh, and now you have this house with with ten people. How how are you creating community? And I, you are living. You are a living example of the love of Jesus. I try. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to tell you how how we how we keep a really positive community in that place, and you're going to go. Oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Okay. <laughs> well, um, we we have a lot of power, and I think that's one thing that you know, nice white church folk have to step back and realize we ha- we have a lot of power. We we like most of the culture. We like to think that somehow we're victims. You mm, know, right? I mean, I, I love it when Christians yep. say, you know, it's Christian persecution, and I'm like, yeah. no. <laughs> it's not persecution unless you risk being killed for proclaiming Jesus, you know, everything else, deal with it. Um, but we have a lot of power in this house because um, it's one of the few places where somebody coming back to the neighborhood from prison after um, after being convicted of a sex-related crime, it's one of the few places that you can have a roof over your head. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of desperation when people come into that house. And especially when you see the way people are enculturated in prison, it's a very transactional system. Right. If I'm good, you'll be nice to me. If I'm not, you're going to throw me in the hole. Okay. It's, it's, it's horrific how transactional life inside a prison is. So in our effort not to be transactional, we don't have a boatload of rules. We have a very small handful of rules. The first one is uh, no drama. Hmm. Because prison is a place where there's a lot of, I mean, think of the movie Mean Girls. I don't care if you're a female or a male. Mean Girls is alive and kicking in prison, okay? Hmm. All of our worst bullying experiences in middle school and high school are the norm in a in a u.s prison at best okay the the list of atrocities gets much worse than that but at best so the first rule that we have in the house is that no drama we're all on the same playing field here everybody in this place has charges that sent them to prison and everybody in this place is dealing with the barriers and the ostracization that come with those charges being of a sex nature. So that's the first thing, no drama. The second thing is that we do our own work, whatever that is, because I don't like one size fits all justice. So we do our own work and then we encourage our housemates to make good choices for the sake of their own well-being as well. And then the third thing is just the way that Dave and I and others who intersect with the guys in the house um, relate to them. 
what we're really trying to do when you build community after somebody has been to prison is renormalize healthy human connections and relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, uh, I mean, eat together, go out to coffee, recognize that you can't get on the grid without an ID. Let's go and get that ID. You know, that's where the nonprofit comes in. We've got our house that we own personally, but then the nonprofit comes in and provides certain resources so that people can get back on the grid. Um, we celebrate just like, I mean, I could call you up anytime, Jeff, and say, oh my gosh, this great thing happened. I want to share it with you. And you would celebrate with me in that. Demonstrating the ability to celebrate those little wins together. I took a guy yesterday to get a driver's license. First, first legitimate drive driver's license that he's had in his life. He goes, I just started driving at 13 and I was, you know, running and gunning and doing drugs. So why do I need a driver's license? I don't want to be on the grid. And I said, How does it feel? And he says, Sometimes it feels like this is the greatest thing ever to start living a normal life. And other times I feel so weird because I've never lived a normal Mm. life. You can only normalize what it's like for people like us who can, I mean, especially you and I, you're a guy, I'm a girl, right? I can tell you, I love you and hug you. And I have. And your wife isn't going to look at me askance and say, get away from my man. Normalizing human relationships for people who have just never had that. Hmm. And it's very unprogrammed. This is one of the things that I'm being called into this work that I had to learn early on. As Christians, as church people, we are so good at... um, and I would say on a good day, what we're really good at is giving the glory to God by telling you how great I am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or how great this thing that I have done is. Um, we're not very good at playing to an audience of one. Mm. And in this case, I, I can't like a missionary stand in front of a church and say, look at all these changed lives. No, these are people who never want you to know. Yeah, that this right. is a part of their story. And so it's pretty fluid and it's stupid little things. Like recently, one of the guys came to me and was like, we have, we have three bathrooms. That, wait, one, two, three. Yeah, we have three bathrooms in this house. And no, four. One of them's a half bath. And he said, um, the half bath, uh, it, it doesn't flush very well when you do the number two. <laughs> and normalizing human relationship is me to say, oh, dude, let me take a look at that. Not like, how big's your crap? You know? It, it, yeah. No. You know? <laughs> right. So I literally am what he saw me do. And this is a great way, too, to, like, create different dynamics between men and women. Mm. He saw me go in there and pull the top off the tank of the toilet and look in it and go, oh, my gosh, the guts in this tank are so corroded. We'll replace that. Yeah. Rather than it being a big, dramatic, you got to get a work requisition and all this other stuff. It's just fluidly living life together that really has the greatest impact on helping people who have been ostracized be um, sewn back in to the fabric of community. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's so much more fluid than most of us who have been in the church for very long are comfortable with. Right. So much more fluid. You know, Jody, um, I was thinking about this earlier. My years in the academy, I also uh, went back to seminary in my late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and I loved every every second of it. And and yet, I mean, the Academy's got its own set of problems and issues for sure. Um, so very close to when you started at seminary, you also started at the prison. 
And I'm just guessing that you got a better education in the prison than you did in the seminary. Uh, it depends on how we define education. Yeah. I would say that seminary, because I'm a nerd, I'm always reading three, four things at the same time, you know, whatever. That's why the like seminary, so <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so fun. Um, the seminary really fed that desire that led me there in the first place to try and understand uh, God's word and God's movement throughout history mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a way that then I was forced to have to articulate and write about. I mean, that that's a key component to what I do. You know, our mission at Remnant Initiatives is to inspire and coach mm. community-minded individuals and groups into action. So having that discipline, that, that was a great education. And I wouldn't change it for anything. I think one of the things that prison really taught me and had such an impact in shaping me is that when people are hurting and all they need to know is that God's love is for them, despite anything they've done, your theology don't mean shit. There you go. It just doesn't, you know? And it's really funny being in that environment and teaching scripture week after week after week after week, digging into scripture and being with women who had more time to read their Bibles than I did in the course of a day. Yeah, I mean, we've got some phenomenal biblical scholars behind bars in this uh, country because they can and they want to. Um, but being in that environment and and reading the scripture through the eyes of someone who really believes their sins are unforgivable. Mm. Sitting in a prayer circle with a woman who's doing a two-year sentence for a low-level drug crime. I'm going to cry on this one. I will always cry on this one. And hearing her just pour out her heart because her daughter, her four-year-old daughter, has just been moved from one foster home to another because the dad in the foster home molested her daughter. Mm. And her only answer is it's because I relapsed. And to proclaim that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. You are not too far gone. No one is too far gone. I've realized that one of the meta-narratives of scripture over and over and over in this beautiful story of God's relentless pursuit of a wayward people yeah. is that we are all more wayward than we're willing to admit. Right. And, and when you get into that environment, all of a sudden, shit gets real. I was having a conversation Years ago, years ago, I think it's like 2014-ish, something like that, with a local pastor, and he was very frustrated. And he says, I haven't seen a conversion in nine years. Hmm. And I stopped for a minute, and I kind of went through this Rolodex in my head. And I said, I'm discipling nine people right now. Yeah. And he looked at me with those, you know, big like, what? eyes and I said oh dude you want to see people come to Jesus you got to get out of church yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love it yeah. yeah I just think being open to what the Holy Spirit is doing in any given moment in any given space and being fluid enough and and curious enough to learn like I said not everybody is called to this kind of work yeah um there are many days that, you know, in working with the guys in our house and especially working with this bureaucratic crazy sauce system, um, many days that I realized that I have been uniquely equipped for this calling um, on a lot of different levels and um, not everybody is. You can do a lot of harm if you go into a space thinking, you know, I'm going to save these people. I'm going to do this work. Right. But I will say not everybody is called 
to do face-to-face work with those who have been impacted by our criminal punishment system. But everybody is called in this day and age, and especially people in the church in this day and age, are called to at least understand uh, the insidious power that this system has had to obliterate communities and create injustices that um, that intersect with our various causes. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Can I reach a quote? Yeah, please. This one, I have it on here. I always have this on my on my monitor. This is Brian Stevenson. And I don't know if you, you know, they did a movie a while back of Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian Stevenson walked out of Harvard Law uh, back in the 80s and went into the heart of the beast and went to Montgomery, Alabama um, and founded a nonprofit called um, Equal Justice Initiative. And specifically working with overturning um, uh, wrongful convictions for people on death row. And, you know, kind of going back to that 13th Amendment, the exception being no slavery in this land, except as a punishment for crime. Right. Created this racialized system. And we can't get around the fact that our, our criminal legal system is racist as all get out. So this quote, Brian Stevenson says, I get frustrated when I hear people talk about how if I had been living during the time of slavery, of course, I would have been an abolitionist. (laughs) And most people think that if they had been living when mobs were gathering to lynch black people on the courthouse lawn, that they would have said something. Everybody imagines that if they were in Alabama in the 1960s, they would have been marching with Dr. King. (laughs) But the truth is, I don't think you can claim, you can't claim that today. If you are watching these systems being created that are incarcerating millions of people, throwing away the lives of millions of people, destroying communities, and you're doing nothing. My charge to other nice white church people is read a book. Okay, read the new Jim Crow. If that's too heady and legal for you, then read Dominique Gilliard's Rethinking Incarceration. Uh, Read Danielle Sered's Until We Reckon about Mm -hmm. restorative justice. Um, Look deeper than the fear narrative that people in in the halls of power have used to get us, and I did it, in 1994 to get us to vote for harsh punishment. Harsh punishment has never been the way of Jesus. And it's certainly not getting us the outcomes that we want in our communities. And as people of peace, the people that pursue shalom, we should at least have an understanding of this system so that when someone says, well, people who break the law should be held accountable, that we can say, all right, what do you mean by accountability? Because mm-hmm. anybody who breaks any law in this country is literally subjected to a life sentence and barriers. Is that what we mean? Anyway. Yeah, good. Well, Jody, thank you for taking some time with us. I was It's funny, I was going to ask you, what books would you recommend? And I didn't have to yeah. ask, so <laughs> you knew yeah. where I was going. If, if people are interested and, in, in connecting with you or learning more about yeah. some of the things you're engaged in, um, we can put some of that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, that'd be great. And you can always, you can find me at, you know, if you, if you want to type out the whole thing, it's a lot of N's and T's, remnantinitiatives.org. Okay. Um, and we've turned that into rem-in.org because trying to get all those N's and M's and T's was just not working for the keyboards. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. But yeah, I'm happy to chat with anybody um, about how you might um, how you might serve this population of people in in your own community. Great, great, great. Well, thank you for being so obedient to the call, and you are truly a gem. Uh, so. Well, thank you for giving me a platform to yip yap about what I think is so important. There you go. Right on. Yeah. Well, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation we've had today with Jody Hansen. And if you have enjoyed it, we would appreciate you giving us a review 
uh, or let your friends and family know by sharing a link with them uh, so that they can listen as well. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And we'll be back with you shortly with another episode of the Communitas Podcast. See you later.